Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. For our audience worldwide on Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio, we can get the White House reaction to this number. I'm very pleased to say that joining us now is Larry Kudlow, National Economic Council Director. Larry, let's start right there. Downside surprise on the payrolls report. People we speak to in the last hour, the last 90 minutes, all say the same thing. This makes it more likely to get a deal down in D.C. Does it make a difference to you, Larry? Well, look, I I just want to say I I don't think this was such a bad jobs report, okay? It may have come in uh, a wee bit under expectations, but I don't know what that means. 6.7% unemployment rate is big news. The CBO and others didn't expect single digits until early 2021. So we got the single digits the last couple of months, 6.7. And incidentally, importantly to everybody, uh, if you look under the hood, the biggest drops in unemployment were in the minority groups, African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians. And let me add, it's not a minority group, it's a majority group. Another big drop in unemployment came from women. That is not just people leaving the labor force, I beg to differ. Uh, We also scored in the household survey, private jobs were up nearly 500,000. That's a strong number. And it's true, we have 10 million unemployed. I understand that. There's still a lot of hardship left, no question. However, let's keep in mind that the peak of that number was 23 million. And when we look at the other statistics, and I'm sure you will want to know, uh, talk about that, other statistics uh, on retail sales and housing and CapEx uh, are very strong. And uh, Atlanta Fed GDP now is looking for 11% Q4. That's their number, not ours. But I'm just saying, I think the economy is very much in a V-shaped recovery. The PMIs were strong. The ISMs were strong. So let's put this in some perspective. The job numbers are not the only stat. And 6.7% unemployment is an awful good number. So, Larry, you and I could debate the state of the economy. I think what matters is how you read the economy, how the administration sees the economy and what it means for how you put together a policy package. So, Larry, talk to me about it. Where are you on stimulus talks right now? Well, I think uh, what we've got, um, Senator McConnell's talking to House Speaker Pelosi. Uh, Our team is, of course, in touch, particularly with Senator McConnell and uh, Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy. Um, People are glad to see that the other team has come down uh, in its numbers. Uh, On the other hand, there are still policy differences that remain. Um, I think Mitch McConnell sounds, to me, I've known him quite some time, a little more optimistic. uh, But I can't say one way or other what the outcome is going to be. I don't want to dare predict that. I I will add this point. From our standpoint, and I, I think Senator McConnell agrees with this, we have... For many, many months, you and I have talked about it here, argued for targeted assistance, targeted assistance in a few key areas. One is the small businesses to resurrect the PPP. Two is unemployment assistance uh, because we're going to continue. As you have noted, uh, we still have a lot of hardship in the unemployment uh, area. That's tough stuff. Uh, School COVID-related spending uh, is good. 
Um, maybe certain industries have to be helped out. And I'll add to that, in terms of the figures that are flowing around, you've got roughly $450 billion available from unspent treasury funds and $135 billion available from unspent uh, PPP funds. Now, in round numbers, I'm going to call that $600 billion, plus or minus. It would be good to use that money, which has already been appropriated uh, once, uh, use it to uh, redeploy it um, and reappropriate it. And in a sense, uh, in a sense, the bookkeeping is okay. You're not really adding above what the legislators uh, suggested uh, way back last winter and a little bit this summer. There's a good way to do that around $600 billion. I'm not going to get into a numbers game. That's up Senator McConnell and Speaker Pelosi. I'm just saying. Well, Larry, you're getting into a numbers game right now. You bring up the numbers. Key, the, the, I'm just saying there's a key targeted areas that could be sure. funded uh, by redeployed appropriations. $160 billion. That's the state aid in the bipartisan plan. This has been a story for the last several months. Let's just get right down to it. That has been the red line for Senate Republicans, state aid. Have we moved the dial on that story, Larry? I don't know. Senator McConnell has indicated that he's not happy with that part of the bipartisan group or the Speaker Pelosi. He's not happy with it. I'm going to leave that. Those are his decisions. Um, he's never been happy with a big bailout of states and localities. A lot of these blue states are poorly managed, pension funds and so forth. COVID-related funding is um, very popular. That's different, though, than a broad-based, uh, sure. huge omnibus appropriation to states and localities. I will leave that to Senator McConnell, but I'm just saying um, that's always been a difficult hurdle to get through. Well, you represented the administration this morning with us, and we're lucky to have you. Would the president sign a bill that has $160 billion of state aid in it? Uh, I wouldn't be able to say that. You'll have to ask him. Uh, I was with him last evening talking about the job numbers and related matters. Um, the president is in favor of a new assistance package. Okay, he is in favor of that. Um, but the details, the targeting that I discussed earlier is absolutely crucial. And as you know, Jonathan, the president has always opposed a large-scale appropriation for state and local governments that he, President Trump, believes have um, been mismanaged for many years. This idea that these states have been mismanaged, Larry, is that what this all comes down to? A political debate about what you guys perceive as the mismanagement of state finances at a time when we're in a pandemic, we're seeing more restrictions in California, New York, and by the way, in Republican states as well. Is this what it's gonna come down to, Larry? I, I don't know that, I, I don't want to, to declare that. I, I wanna go back to targeted assistance, particularly small businesses, uh, unemployment assistance. These are temporary measures um, and COVID-related no schooling matters. School, we can be clear and honest with each other. Matters. Larry, that doesn't sound now, like let, a deal. That doesn't sound uh, like a compromise. Jonathan, I, I'm not going to make a deal with you. I, I hope you understand that. I I'm don't expect you to, sir. I don't expect to negotiate with me either. But the two plans uh, have so been outlined pretty clearly. We've got a bipartisan plan of nine hundred eight billion, and the common plan of five ten, and one hundred and sixty billion of state aid. Larry, don't do that. Come on, let's finish on a good note. We've had, we've done really well for three or four years. Let's not talk to each other like that. I'll give you the time. I'm just laying out the question.
We've got two plans, a $908 billion proposal and a $510 billion proposal. In the bipartisan proposal is $160 billion of state aid. Larry, that's what it's going to come down to. We can either make a deal in the middle or we can't, and it doesn't sound like we can. Can you convince the audience otherwise? I can only give you the facts, okay, as I've laid them out. And as I've said, the president's view, the majority leader's view, Mr. McConnell, my view, certainly Steve Mnuchin's view over at Treasury, is we uh, have targeted areas of assistance that we think would strengthen the economy. And those include most particularly um, PPP for small businesses which are in need dealing with COVID spikes that we expect even more in the Christmas holiday season, and some unemployment assistance, which also we would like to have, uh, again, to get us through uh, the COVID uh, spikes. Uh, and uh, recovery elsewhere is pretty strong. Now, let me add this point. Help is on the way. The vaccines will be distributed, early dis distribution, in a week or two. Okay. I was at Vice President Pence's COVID task force a week or two. They are expecting, these are the experts, uh, at least 20 million by the end of December and at least another 20 million to get to 40 million by January on their way to 100 million in March. Now that becomes awfully important, not only for the health and safety of Americans, but also it will help keep businesses open which is our view, we do not want businesses closed, and it will help keep schools open, which is our view, that is President Trump's view. We do not want schools uh, closed. So that is going to be an enormous boost, and um, we have to kind of lean through this uh, period of the spiking COVID. We get that, that's what our experts are telling us. But help is on the way, and um, we have this massive program uh, Operation Warp Speed, which is panning out, and um, it's going to be a great boon for America. It's going to be a great boon for the American economy. So, coming back to the stimulus package, I'm going to say again, yeah. we see important targeted areas. Most particularly, I'll narrow it down to a couple, frankly. Most particularly, sure. small businesses, the PPP program, which probably saved 50 million jobs, in fact, uh, the per uh, temporary layoffs now, roughly two-thirds of them have gone back to work, which is terrific. Um, secondly, some unemployment assistance because, as I've acknowledged, despite much better than expected jobs numbers for the last seven months, there are still hardships and we need to help out on that. I would say those are the two biggest and perhaps COVID-related assistance um, to schools. We want to keep the schools open, we want to keep the business open. We've got a strong economy in retail sales and housing and capital goods and durable goods sales. One of my favorite best indicators I've seen, I get a lot of material from the Wall Street friends, uh, Ed yeah. Hyman, one of the top economists, has a Christmas tree survey. Christmas, he's a wonderful guy, he's a brilliant guy. He has his Christmas tree survey. It's up 29% year over year. That's a good holiday spirit number that tells me we are, in fact, in the V-shaped recovery. Larry, I gave you three, four minutes then, so you and I can Thank finish you. on good terms. One final Appreciate question, it. sir. We've gone back and forth together for three or four years, sometimes with a little bit of rough and tumble. We've always got our points across. Let me give you the opportunity to do one final thing. 
for your successor? What's your advice for them? Uh, I've never met him. Um, I'm not going to give him policy advice because I fear we have some significant disagreements, but we're in a honeymoon period of sorts. Look, NEC director is a fabulous job. It's a great honor for me to have had that. It's a great honor for me to serve our country as well as this president. Uh, NEC is a very powerful uh, a council. It gets involved in nearly every aspect uh, of economic life, of trade life, of national security matters. It sits on the National Security Council. It is involved across the board, almost every conceivable thing, uh, the NEC. It's a great job. I wish him luck. I do. I pray for him. I do. Um, he better be ready to work hard hours, but I'm sure he knows that. He has served in, in government before. It's a terrific job. And I am blessed to have held that job for nearly three years. As I say, it's the high point of my professional career. And I've always thanked President Trump on that. And I thank everybody else for the opportunity to do this. I just loved the job. And we thank you for your contribution to this program. Larry Kudlow, thank you, sir. Have a good Christmas thank if we you. don't catch up. Larry Kudlow there, the National Economic Council Director. On the bond market, joining us now, Priya Misra, TD Securities Global Head of Rates Strategy. Priya, the number in about one hour and 25 minutes. Does it matter to you? It does matter. I think I'll be watching the momentum. Uh, clearly, that December number is going to matter more because that's when the COVID restrictions should show up in the data. But our uh, economists do have a much weaker number. And I think this market that's forward-looking, that's pricing in the end of the, you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, if the tunnel is long and, you know, scary because we're heading into a period of weaker economic uh, growth, I think the market, the, at least the rates market, is not pricing in much of that weakness. Uh, the 10-year is almost at 1%. So I think the market's really pricing in this vaccine fuel recovery, stimulus, well, we may have to deal with a lower growth environment and the Fed doing more. So I, th I think you actually do get a reaction in the rates market. If it's anything less than 400, 300,000, and our economists have 200,000, so, so we're actually going into mm -hmm. this number long treasuries. Priya, I got to make some money here. The kids wanted a 20-foot Christmas tree. So, you know, I, I broke the bank yesterday. What I want to know, Priya, is do I step in here and buy fixed income, buy bonds, notes, and bills? Because we've had a nice move in yield, and now's the opportunity to look for lower yields later. I think so. Yes. I don't know if it's going to get you your, your Christmas tree, but I think you have to buy a lot more treasuries just because the, the extent of rate move I'm looking for is like 20 basis points. You know, do we get to 75, 80 basis points on the 10 year? So, so there is a floor. We're just very low, uh, you know, close to zero. But I do think we've sold off in treasuries pricing in all the good news out there. There is a key Fed meeting coming up and our view is that they're going to make QE state contingent and they're going to extend the average maturity of QE purchases. They just kind of have to do it. The market's forcing them to do it. And they've realized that there could be longer term scarring. We still have so much uncertainty about the vaccine. So I think rates have sort of priced in too much of that good news. And we haven't quite priced in that we have a long way to go before that COVID recovery is on.
is, is upon us. Priya, I built a little bit on this idea that the market is forcing the Fed to extend the duration of its purchases. I'm looking right now at a 10-year, 0.926%. Not exactly screaming, we're running away with higher yields that could potentially threaten financial conditions. Why do you think that they're forcing the Fed's hand, and what, does bond, uh, what do bond yields do if they do not confirm the market's expectation? So I'm going to say the Fed is the only marginal buyer of treasuries right right now, particularly in the long end. You know, the front end is so anchored by the Fed because of their fate policy, because of just inflation being low, <clears throat> that if investors want to be in treasuries, they want to be in that front end. Meanwhile, the U.S. Treasury is issuing a lot of long-dated paper. And that's really only happened in the last few months that they've you know, uh, they've increased long-end coupon sizes significantly. So the market right now is expecting the Fed to do something in December, which is why we're at 1%. If that meeting happens with nothing, I think we're breaking through that 120, 125. You know, do are we the, at the brink of a taper tantrum? And I think the Fed knows that, which is why we expect them to come in and sort of tell mm, us right. that they're going to keep conditions accommodated. Priya, it's away from your remit, but I'm going to go there. Are we back to 2005 and 2006 of the silly season of parsing out every hundredth of a basis point of investment grade, high yield, leverage loan yield. I mean, are we back to the silliness of reaching out for yield? Yeah, I don't know if you call it silliness, but it, we are in a very serious reach for yield environment. And the question is, is, sometimes people don't understand the risk they're taking, but they're forced into different alternative assets. Um, yes, I think we're, you know, I would suggest people should do credit work because default risk is mispriced in certain products. But in the investment grade sector where you're not worried about default risk and you're not worried about interest rates going higher, I think like anything is fair game in terms of how do I get that extra yield? And we're seeing it in people selling volatility at historic lows. People are selling vol, they are taking spread risk, they're taking FX risk. So I think if interest rates are not going to give you that return, you're going to have to go into other products to get that return. And you know that's the intended consequence of QE. That's what the portfolio balance channel is. You take duration risk out, the central bank takes duration risk out and force investors into the risk spectrum. And the hope is that 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 translates somewhere into an economic recovery and then everything makes sense. I mean, there's a big hope in there that you don't see this disconnect <laughs> between the economy and markets. We all hope it makes sense in the end. We spent 10 years debating whether it made sense a decade ago, Priya. Thank you. Priya Misra of TD Securities. I'm going to put it on a terminal at 9% strength in Chinese yuan. That just racing since June, and we see that across the Pacific Rim. Folding all this in has been Chet Naya and all of Morgan Stanley Economics. The leadership of Alan Zetner, their chief U.S. economist, has been extraordinary to try to figure out the ebbs and flows of GDP and how it folds into a pending jobs report early in January of next year. Ms. Zentner joins us uh, this morning. Ellen, by great definition, today's by discussion, today's jobs report really is a look back. What is the data you see now for the January report? What does December look like? Yeah, so as we roll forward, I think we continue to see job growth uh, slow here. Um, I think we do still hang on to some net job gains uh, because the economy isn't shut down broadly as we did earlier this year. 
Um, but certainly the amount of folks coming back to the labor market and absolutely in that service side of the economy, um, it just has to slow further. I mean, it's gonna be a difficult winter. Uh, we know this, we're married to this idea. We're all disappointed in, in what the winter is gonna look like. But these payroll reports are getting overshadowed by positive news on the vaccine front and the fiscal headlines. Are we going to see services disinflation stay where it is with a slowdown in the service sector? Or do we get back to normal inflation dynamics between services and goods? Well, that's a, those, so those are the two biggest drivers of our inflation forecast for next year. I mean, goods inflation has been driving the numbers this year because the good side of the economy that has been growing and driving output, that consumer demand for durable goods. But next year, as we roll into next year and activity starts to pick up as we move further through getting the vaccine rolled out uh, and activity picking up, that services side does come back. And that is the lion's share of consumer demand. It's the lion's share of what drives the price indices. So goods prices decelerating, but services prices pick up. Services prices representing the bulk of the price indices means inflation will be higher next year. Ellen, everyone's saying that the economy will come back in 2021, and certainly that is consensus, and it's easy to see how that could be the case. But the post-pandemic economy will look quite different in terms of consolidation of companies being stronger and bigger at the top and the smaller companies that have gone out of business. What does that mean longer term for the labor market? Yeah, so, I, you know, the, the small businesses are the, the driver of, of job growth. Um, and part of the, the loss of wage bargaining power over time has been the rise of mega companies and company density. Uh, and so that is something that when you add that to the other inequities that have been exposed, further exposed by COVID on the household side, I think it's a heavy lift uh, that uh, the Democratic Party is going to focus on in terms of that fiscal policy activism that overall tries to to raise the labor share of, of profits. Um, and that is, has been part of our longer run thesis on why inflation over the long run would be structurally higher. I think that's going to be the focus going forward, not just household inequities, but inequities on the business side as well. Ellen, we spend a lot of time on programs like this, bidding up on the south side. I have to say, let's just no. take a moment to really talk about one of the calls coming out of this crisis. And that was from you and the team, that this recovery would be quick. This recovery would be sharp. It would look like a V. And that was something we heard from politicians down in Washington, but many people just did not believe. This has been so underappreciated in the same way the equity market record highs are hated. Ellen, what did everyone get wrong what do we learn from the lesson and how do we apply it for the months still to come? Well, I think, you know, for, for me, there's a, there's a story that's missing in that, that V-shaped recovery. Um, and to me, it's, you know, when you open up from nothing to something, it's a very big jump in activity. Uh, and this was not a cyc cyclical downturn. This was a structural downturn. So the way the virus would play out, the way vaccine development would play out, the way the economy opens up, that's what's dictating that V-shape in the economy. Where I am still greatly disappointed and where I think there's still a lot of heavy lifting to do is exactly what Chair Powell and the Fed are looking at as well. I'm looking at women's labor force participation rates. I'm looking at the unemployment rate of minority communities, of the unemployment rate of those that are concentrated in low wage paying service sectors that are going to see longer term damage from this. And so I do think that there is a great need 
and focus uh, on further fiscal support so that these longer term unemployed folks don't leave the labor market altogether. Because if that's the case, then it doesn't matter that we got a V-shaped recovery. Uh, it's going to matter that longer run potential growth has been damaged. So this is important, Alan. The big call from Morgan Stanley was this V-shaped recovery at the headline level. The complication you're talking about is the disparity beneath. Have we already done sufficient damage that it could take years, maybe even a decade, to recover from what we've experienced, Ellen? Or can we actually do something about it? No, I think we can do something about it. I mean, the, the biggest way that, that you can affect, uh, 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 help those underlying uh, uh, components of the labor market is by running a tight labor market, meaning a hot economy, uh, very easy monetary policy accommodation, uh, targeted fiscal policies right up front, more is clearly needed, uh, and we expect more to come. Um, but those kinds of things can get you as tight of a labor market, so as low of an unemployment rate as possible, as quickly as possible. And we do think by the end of 2022, with that kind of focus, we can push the unemployment rate down back down to around 4%, so getting close to the Fed's uh, goal of maximum employment. Uh, but without that, you know, I think the, the, the literature, there's a, there's a broad body of literature that shows that if you have a sluggish recovery after a deep downturn, uh, that you do uh, see permanent scarring to the economy. So I can't stress enough that we need to be doing all of this upfront now in order to push the unemployment rate down as quickly as possible and get those folks back reattached to the labor market and reemployed. Ellen, given the high flying stocks, given the fact that equity markets are at new highs again and again, does that complicate the urgency to try to get something done, as you say, on the fiscal side? In other words, is the high, uh, the high valuation of equities actually hampering the fundamental recovery of the economy? Uh, well, the hampering the fundamental recovery uh, no, but hampering uh, what typically are drivers of Congress to act quickly, yes. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's nothing like good old market volatility and sell-offs and really bad data coming in to get Congress to act quickly. Uh, and we've just not been forced by that. Uh, we're trying to be forward-looking here and call for fiscal, you know, further fiscal support before we see broad swaths of the labor market get sent back home. Uh, if the, the virus tightens its grip over the winter uh, and we see further shutdowns. Um, but certainly, you know, if we got that negative payrolls print today, which we're not expecting, um, but as John pointed out, there's a big spread and there are some expectations for a negative number. Certainly that would impress uh, urgency upon Congress to do something. And yeah. I think the, the bizarre thing out of today's payroll print, it print is if it is a bad print, Folks might take that as a good thing because it might push Congress to act. Uh, Ellen, I want you to help your colleague, Mike, Mike Wilson. I know he listens. He hangs on your every word. But I want you to play equity strategist right now because it is part of economics. NASDAQ 100 off the financial crisis trend is out three standard deviations. It's an exceptionally elegant chart, and it shows the monetary and fiscal oomph of the nation, which has driven equities. There's no question about that. Do you just assume a mean, mean reversion of equities within a five or 10 year view? Is that just part of your playbook that you got to tell Mike Wilson about? <laughs> yeah. I don't think I give him advice on where equities will be. And as you know, when economists put on a strategist hat, 
it can be pretty dangerous. Um, but he's got a target of 3,900 um, on S&P at the end of next year. And I think we're, I think people are going to be surprised at how much economic activity we pick back up over the course of the year as we're rolling out the vaccine. I can tell you from just a, a, a personal experience, as soon as the efficacy rates of the vaccine began uh, getting reported and that we're so positive, um, you try to pick any summer travel place and have it with a with a with a healthy uh, cancellation policy. Uh, and the t two of the top three places we wanted to go to were already booked. People were booking that quickly. So I think we will be surprised at how quickly activity comes back. And I think investors are looking forward to that. That's a very simple optimism compared to what an equity from Birmingham Ryanair yesterday. Ellen, thank you, and thank you for phenomenal guidance through much of this year. Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley, thank you very much. Right now on policy, as John Farrell mentions, a key topic with Mr. Cudlow, Henrietta Trace joins us. Henrietta, is the ink drying on a stimulus bill right now? Are you that certain it can get done? I'm actually, I feel pretty great about it, honestly. I know that's crazy talk after the last six months of inaction, but um, I don't think there's a question of whether or not we're going to get a bill anymore. I think it's what is the size and scope going to be. So I am optimistic. I would say low end 65, 70% odds that we get a bill done in the next two weeks here. Okay, I'm looking right now. The 10-year uh, yield believes your message. Right now, yields breaking out, as John was pointing out earlier, almost now up to 95 basis points as people price in the greater likelihood of some sort of fiscal support package passed in Washington on the heels of this labor market report. Do you believe that, Henrietta, that this was a bad enough report to push any of the laggards on uh, Capitol Hill into passing something? I really do. I had an interesting conversation with a client yesterday who is still sort of looking at stimulus as unnecessary and saying, you know, the market clearly doesn't need stimulus. And I think that's uh, an outdated way of thinking about how D.C. considers economic policy. This is an anomaly under the Trump administration that anyone cared about the stock market in Washington, D.C. It's about the fundamental data. It's about the jobs data. It's about the unemployment number. It's about GDP data. It's slow moving, but it's exactly this kind of print that makes members in D.C. say, oh, right, they're substantial amount of unemployed. We are having a massive increase in COVID. Uh, we're going into the holidays. We're not going to be here for another month and a half. Something now. Let's package it'll be somewhere in the $600 billion range. That includes $300 billion roughly in money that has already been allocated in previous iterations of stimulus, whether the CARES Act or the PPP program or the ESF programs at the um, Fed and Treasury level. But there's going to be somewhere in the range of about $300 billion in new funding that goes out just to extend the pandemic unemployment assistance. Where does just McConnell extend, stand? Just, uh, Henrietta, I'm wondering, the key mm -hmm. sticking point, as we've been talking about all morning and, frankly, for a couple of months now, is the funding to state and local governments. What's sort of the tipping point for McConnell to get on board with this $908 billion bipartisan agreement or something that still includes some aid to state and local governments? State and local is absolutely a sticking point because you still have this divide mentality amongst Midwestern senators uh, in the red-blue state divide. But I think if you can drill down and stop um, discussing just state and local broadly but get into schools need this aid, 
specifically buses, rail, transit, um, subways. These programs are going to lay off 10,000 workers. They're slashing um, their provi provisions by 40% in D.C., in New York, in Chicago. They are making a lot of noise at the transit level. So I think if you could start talking about transit funding and specific segments. Oh, come on. Henrietta, Henrietta I, I take issue with this after talking to Patrick Foy. Washington hates transportation because they're Democrats in big cities. Is that going to change in the next 48 hours? I think I think there's enough of a push, honestly, to get you a small basket of funding for those sectors. It include airlines, by the way. Um, there's uh, you know a long way to go there, but I do think that fundamental uh, underperformance and lack of there is something that has shifted in the last couple of months. Yes. Henry, it's a bit of disruption on your line, but we'll stick with it because this conversation is important. How important are the things that we're discussing right now to the January 5th runoffs in Georgia? I think that's a really critical question, obviously. Um, it's important because you need to get enough funding to keep Democrats at home and not enough to alienate your Republican base. So that package that I just walked through, roughly $600 billion or so in spending, does just that. It's no bailout. There's no 300 to $600 a week unemployment insurance booster at the federal level, no direct payment to individuals, none of that, you know, Democratic socialist-minded stuff uh, that will get the Republican senators in trouble, Senators Perdue and Loeffler, but it is also enough to provide aid to the Democrats or the members of the Georgia community who need it the most, mostly in that unemployment insurance aid, to get them to potentially stay home. This is going to be the largest turnout runoff in the state of Georgia, per the electoral officials' expectations. The margins are exceedingly tight. Um, the latest data shows that Ossoff is up 50 to produce 48, whereas Warnock is up 52 to Loeffler's 45 um, in the polls. And Georgia polls, for what it's worth, were pretty accurate in November. So um, there needs to be a concerted effort to turn out the Republican base, which means the stimulus needs to be um, relatively small, but there needs to be enough to keep the Democrats home as well, which creates some concern around whether President Trump should or should not go to Georgia um, or whether or not they should or should not pass even a minimal stimulus bill this cycle. I, so I think they will. I think that's threading the needle from McConnell's perspective, and that's what they'll get. This is not part of the conversation on Wall Street, Henrietta. It barely comes up. The outlooks for 2021 hardly even include January 5th. There is just an assumption that we have a divided government down in Washington, D.C. Do you think that's a mistake? Well, if we do see the Democrats pick up the next two seats in Georgia, there will be the definition of divided in D.C. 50 is not a functional majority. Um, we're going to need to watch the two at-risk members for flipping sides. That would be maybe Lisa Murkowski or Joe Manchin, a Democrat out of West Virginia. Um, you're going to look at a 60-vote threshold for any legislation, regardless of what happens in Georgia, in my opinion. Um, that is what uh, President-elect Biden is signaling he will make his State of the Union address about, his inaugural speech about, and concentrate on exclusively the coronavirus, uh, the need for stimulus, and that will occupy all of the first quarter, at least, of 2021 until they get it. And then if there is a 50-seat Democratic, uh, you know, quote-unquote majority, they'll try to pursue things like reconciliation instructions and get more funding, but you're not going to see any more legislation pass. So I encourage our clients to focus on things that can change at the regulatory level, and then, of course, trade policy, U.S.-China relations, U.S.-EU relations, yep. U.S.-Japan. That's the focus for the future. 
It's a conversation for another time. Henrietta, we always enjoy catching up with you. Thank you. Henrietta Trace there, Verde Partners, the Director of Economic Policy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.